It's good to be back after uh, a few weeks off for some continuing education and some family camping trips. I am genuinely feel good about being back in uh, our community here in the lettered streets and this church. It's so good to see your faces. And I'm excited about getting back into the sermon series that uh, we had left off in in the book of Philippians. Uh, so this evening I'm gonna just pick up where we left off in the third chapter of Philippians. Um, verses 12 through 14, and before I dive into that passage, I just want to share a quick story about one of our camping trips uh, from a couple weeks ago. So uh, a couple weeks ago, our family was at Lincoln Rock State Park, and we were on the Columbia River. I was paddleboarding with our dog Luna, little labradoodle on my board, and Samara was with me in her pink kayak, right? We were out, uh, got a, several hundred yards off of the shore, and uh, we ran into a, a group of three. There was a, a man and his wife and another guy, and they were in these kayaks. And one of the guys um, was quite a, a large man, and he was in quite a small kayak, and uh, he thought that was funny. And, um, and then a ski boat went by, actually a wakeboarding boat, so that the wake was quite large, and um, those waves passed by, and he got sideways, and his boat got swamped. And at first it was, it was pretty funny, and he thought it was funny, and oh, here's this big guy in like a little life jacket, interior Chris Farley. Uh, anyway, uh, he was doing that impersonation. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden it wasn't funny, and um, he began to panic. And what hit him was the cold water of the Columbia River and a sort of unfit body and a boat full of water. His kayak was submerged. It was the kind that wasn't a sit on top, but had all these chambers that filled with water and it was now weighing hundreds of pounds and he was struggling. Samara, if something goes wrong in the water, what are you not supposed to do? Yeah, you don't panic. That's right, little Coast Guard girl, that's right. Um, you don't panic you try and keep a calm head and you have a good life jacket hopefully and you conserve energy so you can make rational wise decisions uh, which makes a lot of sense not panicking when it's on paper um, but unless you practice in real life it's super counterintuitive like the intuitive thing to do is oh my gosh i'm in trouble i better work harder to get out of danger faster and get out of this situation the Philippian church that Paul is writing to in this letter was experiencing some types of danger, religious persecution, political oppression, and some other different forms of danger. And the gospel of Jesus that came to them initially sounded like a breath of fresh air, but eventually grace didn't seem like enough for them. And so these folks began to thrash about, if you will. They began to struggle. And rather than staying calm and like turning to God in prayer, they began to call, their leadership began to call the church people to work harder, to get more religious, to add to the grace of Jesus by requiring more rules and regulations and, and even challenging Paul directly by having non-Jewish Christians start to become circumcised. And so Paul, basically, the beginning of chapter three is Paul saying, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing? What do you think is gonna happen if you have people add on regulations to the grace of God? You're going down the wrong path. Like, what do you think this is going to do? Is it, is it gonna force God's hand to pay attention to you? Do you think if you perform better religiously that God is going to do whatever you want for him, for you? 
Do you think he's going to get you out of your predicament because you're a better religious performer? Paul is saying that that doesn't work. And he goes on to list all of these ways that he was righteous in the law before he met Jesus, how he followed all the rules, how he was the most religious, most devout, the hardest worker out there. And he says when he met Jesus, when he received the love and the grace and acceptance of God, based not on his performance, but based on the love of Jesus himself, well, you've probably heard the line before, but I'll just quote Paul himself. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ himself, the righteousness which comes from God through the faith basis. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain resurrection of the dead. And so Paul's warning the Philippians not to put their faith in their religious performance Because if anyone had a shot at ever making that work, it was Paul, and he's telling them two things. One, it doesn't work. (laughs) And two, Jesus does work. Like knowing him and trusting him and the joy of the hope of resurrection, it's all worth it. It's what leads to wholeness and joy and ultimately what every person needs, hope. So all of that sort of necessary recap leads us into the passage we'll be exploring today, which is Philippians 3, 12 through 14. It goes like this. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. In these three short sentences, Paul gives us two amazing graces that I'm going to spend the rest of our time sort of developing and unpacking. He they're, they're these two things. He normalizes the struggle of faith. He normalizes the struggle of faith. It's normal to struggle with faith, okay? The second thing that he does is he reminds us of the ultimate hope that we have. It's what he calls the upward call, and we'll develop that a little bit later. I'm a very beginner mountain biker, like, what, like a month and a half, Nathaniel, I've had that bike, maybe two. Um, and our family went camping at Whistler a couple weeks ago, and I was riding in the village trails. And um, I, I got on this trail that I thought, oh, this will challenge me. And it had all of these like skinny boardwalks. Like you guys who mountain bike know all this. It's Pinocchio's furniture. And I, first of all, I made the mistake of going up Pinocchio's furniture, which I'm pretty sure it's designed to go down. And, um, and I kept falling off the bridges. And so there's this one really windy one that was up, a few feet above the ground. I'm like, I don't want to fall off this. So 
I put my tail between my legs and I walk to this long winding boardwalk and there's this other dude coming down walking and we sort of nodded at each other like, yeah, we're not there yet, are we? He's like, yeah, I broke my derailleur on the same run yesterday. I'm back trying to conquer it, but I'm walking this part. And it was kind of like comforting to know that like not everyone else is an expert. Like there are people at different levels and th that was really comforting to me. And, and, and I, I think it would be easy for the Philippians or for us to consider the esteemed Apostle Paul as someone who has already arrived at the pinnacle of spiritual maturity in Jesus as some expert follower of Christ. But what Paul does for the Philippians and basically does for us too because we're reading this passage is he normalizes the reality that faith is active and it's an ongoing journey. That faith is a word that implies trust and participation and process and imperfection. Because in real life, faith is a journey of ups and downs, of deserts and gardens. And oftentimes when we experience dryness, like distance from God, like when you feel like I don't wanna talk to God or I don't like the Bible or prayer is horrible. Did you know that's not because you're a bad person? or because you're faithless, it might be because you're getting really close to God. And that is resistance, it's a defense mechanism in, inside of us, it's like, I'm not so sure I wanna get that close to God right now, because I'm not so sure what it'll mean for my life. During a class I took this summer at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Dr. Daryl Griffin, I think it was a throwaway line. It wasn't a throwaway line for me. I'll share it with you. He said, everyone wants to improve. No one wants to change, right? Everyone wants to improve. Nobody wants to change. Faith is a process that will involve overcoming resistance, but it is not the journey of a one-time Deal. It is a journey of a lifetime of ups and downs and micro decisions. One writer prefers to talk about the life of faith as faithing. By adding the ing, it implies this active participation and it leaves the door open for seasons of doubt and struggle. It leaves the door open for the normal aspect of our lives of deconstruction and reconstruction with our faith. These are all normal parts of the journey of faith in a person's life. So I just want you to hear loud and clear, like don't despair if you're deconstructing a concept that you'd held dear for a long time and you're rethinking things. You're like, I wonder where I still stand on this or that. Like, don't be like, oh, I have to hide. I'm ashamed of that. That's a normal part of maturing in faith. And I want to encourage you that, that, that Paul is normalizing this for us. So no matter where you are right now on your faithing journey, you're right where Jesus expects you to be. Like, it's not a mystery to him. In this passage, Paul normalizes the process of faith, and he confesses that he hasn't arrived, that he has not yet become complete. And he, like the, that list of names in Hebrews 11 that Tommy read just moments ago, um, he hasn't yet arrived at the complete promise that faith points toward. And, and he tells us this, so that we won't give up when it gets hard. So often we hear about faith, and I hope you never hear about it like this from me, but so often we hear about faith in terms of either you have it or you don't have it. 
And it's sort of this mystery. And we look around at church and we think like, man, all these people must have faith. I feel bad about myself because I don't feel like I have faith today, right? It's either you got it or you don't have it. Um, but, but God's world, like people don't work that way. And the world that God designed, you know why people don't work that way? Because God didn't design a world that works that way. Even when you find faith in Jesus impossible or doubtful, you're on the part of the journey that is necessary for you where you're at in order to grow. So don't feel bad about where you are. I think it might help us to break down faith into some essential elements, because faith is just this nebulous, like what does that even mean, have faith? What what does that mean? Um, Okay, so we're gonna break down faith into its essential elements in order to get away from this all or nothing, have it or don't have it mentality that I don't think the Bible supports and I don't want to teach and you know deep in your heart isn't real anyway. So these five elements, I just want to be really clear, these five elements I'm about to share come directly from a book titled Inviting the Mystic, Supporting the Prophet. It's written by Catherine Dykeman and Patrick Carroll. And these five things and this concept I'm sharing is from pages seven through 11. So just like, boom, that's, that's it. And, and for you note takers, what I'm gonna do is list the five essential elements and then I'll go back and unpack them. Just if you need to have that rubric in your mind, uh, we're gonna put those on the screen here now. So the first one is conversion. Uh, conversion, again, I'll, I'm gonna unpack these as we go, but... Um, Let's get the list down first. So the second one is struggle. The third one is a call to integrity. The five essential elements of faith. The fourth one is a call to reality. And the fifth one is a call to radicality, which English people, that is not a word. Um, But because I am explicitly quoting someone else's book, it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> it's a turn of phrase they like, and it makes sense. So uh, there we go. Conversion, struggle, a call to integrity, a call to reality, and a call to radicality. All right, let's start with conversion. Thank you for that. You can leave that list up a couple more minutes, and then, um, and then we'll, we'll take it down. But let's start with conversion. A lot of people think that conversion is something that happens and like a one-time event that you know, all the, I, I wasn't something, like here, here's a, it doesn't even have to be religious, right? Like um, when I was dating Corey, she was a vegetarian. And one time I was cooking his deals, I, I, I had her veggie burger patty on the grill. Uh, I used to have this, like this little Weber, you know, with the charcoal. And, and, and then I had a real, a real burger. Sorry, vegetarians. I had a real burger with like really good seasonings and she smelled the aroma and we were eating and she goes, could I have a bite of that? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm not, you know. Conversion experience, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so sometimes we think it just happens, right, like that. Um, but actually, conversion is a process. It requires relationship and trust because whenever we change our minds or change our allegiances or change our worldview or, or you name the change, it makes us vulnerable, Uh, We have to admit that maybe what we were doing or thinking wasn't sufficient for the new reality uh, that we're faced with in life. In fact, conversion, like I said with the burger example, doesn't even have to be religious in nature. So let me just take it out of the Christian religious kind of 
world for a minute just to kind of make the point, and we'll go back to that kayaker who was panicking and struggling in a submerged boat. He was convinced that trying harder in that moment was going to be the ticket to his rescue. And what, what happened was, is um, I, I've been part of enough emergency scenarios where I know like, you don't want to get near a panicking person in the water, so I let him get tired a little bit, and then I put Luna, actually Luna just jumped, she likes to jump between boats, she jumped to Samara's boat, so now I've got my paddleboard all to myself, and I slipped into the water uh, about three feet away from this guy, and I just started talking to him, and I got his name, and I got where he's from, and I said, hey, I've got an idea. Like, what if we put your boat on top of my paddleboard and tipped it upside down, then, then the water would come out, he's, oh, yeah, maybe we can do that. And so we did it, and it worked, um, which is like a form of conversion, right? Like he had one way he was gonna solve this problem, and then he was confronted with a different way because what he was doing wasn't working, and he sort of converted to this new idea, uh, this new way of seeing things. And if we take this now into the realm of faith in Jesus, conversion is just a point in the process. Like Paul, we know his story, if you know his story, he had a conversion experience on the road to Damascus, right? This blinding light and the, 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 the voice of God confronting him. And he's confronted with not only the reality or the, the message of the risen Jesus, but actually with the risen Jesus. Like now, whatever Paul was thinking before about Christianity being like the sect of the devil or something like that, he's meeting Jesus now. And he's gotta change, right? He's gotta like do mental gymnastics in his mind to get his head around that. But knowing the truth and living that truth out in all aspects of his life, just take Paul for an example, is gonna take so many different conversions. So Paul in that moment is converted like at least to the knowledge that Jesus is real and he's actually alive because I just saw him. But it would take another conversion for Paul to realize that like Maybe kosher laws don't apply anymore to Christian faith. And it would take another conversion for Paul to say, like, maybe circumcision isn't the entry point into the people of God. Maybe faith in Jesus is. And then it would take another uh, conversion for Paul to say, you know, maybe Gentiles can be grafted right into the people of God and not have to become Jew. You know what I'm saying? So there's all of these micro conversions or not even so micro. Like, those are some pretty big worldview shifts that, that happen along the way. The struggle comes when our, our converted thinking or worldview or faith challenges the way we've been living or thinking or perceiving reality. That's the second one, is the struggle. The struggle with the change. Like, what do we do with this new reality? How do we implement it? So if we go back to the story of the kayaker, I had pitched him the idea that we should dewater his boat on top of my paddleboard, and then I would tow him to shore safely so that he could get in his boat from the shore, right? And so he's converted to this idea initially. The boat goes on my paddleboard. The water goes out. You know what that guy did? He pulled it right off my paddleboard. And he said, I got it from here. And he tries to get in it. He's like, two, whatever, like a lot of two. Uh, and, and, and he's wearing a medium-sized life jacket. So it's just really comical. And he's in the middle. Have you ever tried to get in a boat in the middle of the water? Like, it's hard to do. I can't do it. He submerges it right away. So now it's like below the water line, just kind of floating because it's the same like density as the water. And it's just, it's, it's not working. Um, 
the life of faith is really similar to that. You know, initially we might enjoy the rush. Jesus died for me and he forgives my sin and he wants to be in relationship with me. Woohoo, that's so great. Camp high or whatever it is. And we might think like, you know, the pastor said that praying is a good idea. I'm gonna try that one out or I'm gonna, wow, I should read my Bible. Look at all these cool stories about Jesus in the early church and all these weird ones about yeah, that we're going to do in our series this fall because there's weird stories in the Bible. Lots of weird stories. But anyway, it's all pretty exciting and like, I know I ought to do this. Woohoo! Um, and we're converted to the idea that all these are good things, going to church and worship and serving and all these different things. And then we struggle with our old desires and our old habits. And we start to get to this place where like, I want Jesus and I want my way. Uh, I want to follow Jesus, you know, unless it's inconvenient and there's, there's other things I'd like to do more. And that struggle is necessary. It is part of faith. And so it leads to this next step, the call to integrity. In, in the struggle phase of faith, we begin, we begin to sort of see the difference in us. Like, there's this part of me that really is like, yeah, like Jesus, like when I'm with his people, like, I'm all for it, but then there's this other part of me that's just as real, that I don't like showing everybody else, and it's kind of like, I I really like to do my own thing. And we see that there's a person we want to be and a person who we really are. There's a person we, we might pretend to be when we're around our friends or with our family or our coworkers or our church, and we begin to see that we put on different masks for different occasions in order to protect our true self from being rejected. But living by faith in Jesus involves him gently but consistently inviting us to integrity, to integration of all of these different parts of us so that who we are on the outside is congruent with the person on the inside. And you know, there's usually, this process requires lots of different seasons where life gets harder before it gets easier. Remember that quote, everyone wants to, to, to improve, but no one wants to change? Well, sometimes who we really are on the inside, like sometimes like my mask of being amiable and like always like there for everyone, like sometimes I'm just a tired, grumpy guy who just wants to wear my sweats all day or do what I wanna do, right? And like, that guy is not easy to get along with. And so sometimes if I'm gonna be honest about who I am or how I feel, you might be like, what's his problem, right? Um, and, and when you're getting real with your stuff, like it's messy. When we went through that series, um, The Lazarus Life, and Lazarus is coming out and transforming, like people are like, dude, you stink. Like, like when you start to come into new life, sometimes there's some really like raw and messy things that have to happen. And that's just part of the process. And I think a lot of times we're too ashamed to let that side of us out and so we shrink back and we keep those masks on. Kayak guy, seeing his boat filled again now, wah wah, we had it all emptied out and now it's all full again. You know what he did in this integration part is he's in the water and he apologized. And he admitted, man, just wanted to get this over with. His wife was there. His friend was there. He was embarrassed, and I get that. Like, you want to just be able to to do it yourself. He said, like, let's do, do you mind doing it again? I said, no, no, it's totally, we'll do it again. We'll dump the water out, 
and then I had the dog leash, and I towed the boat, and he just held onto my board, and we went over to the shore, and he got in, and he left. But it took this integration of these two pieces. There was the bravado part, and then there was like, dang, I'm in serious trouble here. And those things had to come together. So the fourth element of living a life of faith in Jesus is the call to reality. Carolyn Dykeman writes, we see events and people around us with new clarity. We become personally deeply touched by things like the horror of world hunger. There grows a dawning sense of the interconnectedness of all phases of our life as we put on the mind of Christ. And so I guess the point is that as we grow in faith, or in trust in Jesus, we not only become more self-aware of sort of the duplicity in our own lives, but we become more aware of what's going on in the world. And, and, and we begin to see the inconsistencies of like systems. For example, inconsistencies, like if someone is all tied in, say on a particular political party, and we think, oh, that's the right political party because they pick the right policies. But then you begin to see the inconsistencies in like, wow, I say I'm really for life, but then I'm spending, I'm for a party that's spending trillions of dollars on uh, uh, arsenal of weapons, right? Or, or gosh, I say I'm really for um, social services, but I, I really am not also for uh, protecting the rights of, of the vulnerable or everybody else. And so you start to see, like, actually what happens as you mature is you sort of become, like, pissed about everybody or more in the middle, right? Like, you start to see, like, nobody's following Jesus perfectly. Like, I can't just go all in on a one political savior because no political savior is the savior, We begin to see like how our life choices affect our neighbors and affect the environment and affect the world, right? It's, it, we, we feel more connected to everyone else. That, that's, that's part of what it means to be called to reality. And finally, we come to this fake word that I still like. We call the call to radicality. The call to live differently. This is the part of faith that actually has legs. It's the action step phase. All of that conversion and struggle and coming to grips with our self-awareness and seeing the world through a new lens of Jesus, all of that is kind of conceptual. It's idea land stuff. But, but radicality means like now I'm actually gonna to do something about it. I'm going to change something about me. This is the, uh, radicality is what leads Abraham to leaving his known land for an unknown land because God calls him. That's faith, radicality. It, it's, what, it's what leads Moses, this stuttering, fearful guy who tried multiple times not to lead. It's what, radicality is what gets Moses to confront Pharaoh, like the most powerful human in that part of the world at the time. It leads Peter from failure and betrayal of Jesus to being a faithful leader. It leads Paul, who was at one point on this trajectory of upward mobility in the religious system of the Pharisees to calling that all dung and going on the path of downward mobility of following Jesus into all of these crazy places in the world. These elements of faith, they're not one-off. They're not linear experiences. You don't go through the five stages of faith and then like, I did it. It's, it's like 
imagine all of the things that you've been converted of. I got converted to avocados when I met Corey. Like, heard the burger thing. I, you know, I started liking different things and started thinking different, like, silly examples, right? But those are those are real examples of how you change your mind about something, and then you struggle with, what well, do I really want to change everything about it? And then, you know, oh, there's a new reality, and finally, you, you make a change. And faith, faith is just like that, and it's a lifelong thing. I don't wonder, I don't wonder that you are experiencing some of these elements of faith even now, but I encourage you this week to consider what God might be showing you about the stage of life you're in right now. Like, where are you, where could you find yourself in these five stages? What is the, the thing um, that you're working through right now? I, I encourage you to talk to God about that. Um, and rather than feeling pride about how, how strong you feel your faith is, I hope you feel your faith is strong, that, that'd be great. Or rather than feeling shame about how weak or indifferent you might be experiencing faith in Jesus, I, 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 I wanna invite you to consider a prayer of welcome. Uh, a prayer of thanking God that he has you right where you're supposed to be. And I realize how trite that sounds if you're really struggling right now. But I hope, I hope in that, in that invitation you can find some grace because God does know what you're going through right now. He's not judging you if you're feeling weak in your faith or faithless. He's not, he's not waiting for you to get it right. He's with you in the process. Hear that. I, I think that's, that's been speaking grace in volumes to me this week too and I wanted to share that with you. So in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul normalizes the struggle of living by faith, and he gives voice to the fact that faith is not a thing to possess or a one-time event that never changes. It's a dynamic process in which God initiates and we respond, and it goes back and forth. But the second thing that Paul reminds us of is that no matter what your experience or non-experience with faith might be, no matter how you feel you are doing or not doing at faithing, Paul wants us to know that our hope, regardless of those experiences, our hope is secure in Christ. Like using the metaphor of the foot race, which is super common language to Greek and Roman uh, people because of the athletic games, Paul talks about his focus on Jesus being like a runner who doesn't look back. And everyone knows if you've been in a race, like it's counterproductive to look back, like where are they at? What's going on? Who's on my heels? Like you're wasting energy and time. Like just focus on ahead, right? And Paul talks about his focus on Jesus being like that of a runner who doesn't concern himself with what's behind, what other people are doing, what other people are saying, what other people are thinking. His focus is on Christ. And he writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is this prize? What is this upward call? I think it's Paul's shorthand way of talking about the resurrection. It is the hope of life eternal where he will know Jesus fully. That's his heart's desire. But for Paul, and in Christian theology in general, the prize, that upward call, it's more than just the, like the idea of eternal life or even the idea of resurrected bodies. It, it's nothing short of the whole 
kingdom of God, that song we sang that Christy and Nathaniel led, the world is about to turn, the canticle of the turning of justice coming and restoration happening, it's all of that stuff. That's what resurrection, the, the upward call is shorthand for. It's the promise, the assurance that at some point in history, Jesus will reappear and bring healing and justice and new creation on earth as it is in heaven. That's really good news. That Jesus will make us new. That is the hope that Paul has in Christ. That is the hope he says everyone with a shred of faith can have in Christ, that you can have in Christ. No matter how you feel about your faith, no matter how you experience your faith, Isn't that good news? That it's not up to your feelings or your performance? And what Paul is saying is that the upward call of following Jesus is living by faith in the hope of what's to come. It's like saying, I might not feel it, but that hope is secure, and I'm going to live in reaction to it. So take heart. In this age, like, don't we, don't we have countless troubles but our hope is in Christ and the age to come. And I, I hope that that gives us hope, but also challenges us, encourages us to share that hope by living it out in such a way that it blesses the people in our lives. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for your servant Paul who has given us such a gem tonight of um, normalizing the faith struggle, God. I I know that it is so tempting to isolate and to pull away and to try and work things out on our own, which just makes us feel shameful. Um, Thank you for um, this reminder that that doubt and uh, ebbs and flows of faith is a normal part of the experience. Thank you even for Paul being vulnerable to admit that he was not yet there. And thank you also for this hope that we have in the new creation, in you, Lord Jesus, redeeming all things, making all things well and right. Help us to place our faith in that reality and to live, Lord, faithfully blessing our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.